section eleven of a history of our own times volume four by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter fifty two the leap in the dark part two parliament and the public were amazed at these sudden changes the whole thing seemed turning into burlesque the session had seen only a few days and here already was a third variation in the shape of the government's reform project to increase the confusion and scandal it was announced three or four days after that three leading members of the cabinet general peel lord carnarvon and lord cranbourne had resigned the whole story at last came out the revelation was due to the magnificent indiscretion of sir john packington whose lucky incapacity to keep a secret has curiously enriched one chapter of the political history of his time in consequence of the necessary reconstruction of the cabinet sir john packington was transferred from the admiralty to the war office and had to go down to his constituents of droitwich for re-election in the fullness of his heart he told a story which set all england laughing the government it would appear started with two distinct reform bills one more comprehensive and liberal as they considered than the other the latter was kept ready only as a last resource in case the first should meet with a chilling reception from the conservatism of the house of commons in that emergency they proposed to be ready to produce their less comprehensive scheme a shopman sometimes offers a customer some article which he assures him is the only thing of the kind fit to have but if the customer resolutely declares that its price is more than he will pay the shopman suddenly remembers that he has something of the same sort on hand which though cheaper will he has no doubt be found to serve the purpose quite as well so the chiefs of the conservative cabinet had their two reform bills in stock if the house should accept the extensive measure well and good but in the event of their drawing back from it there was the other article ready to hand cheaper to be sure and not quite so fine to look at but a very excellent thing in itself and warranted to serve every purpose the more liberal measure was to have been strictly based on the resolutions the cabinet met on saturday february twenty third eighteen sixty seven and then as sir john packington said he and the others were under the impression that they had come to a perfect understanding that they were unanimous and that the comprehensive measure was to be introduced on monday the twenty fifth on that monday however the cabinet were hastily summoned together sir john rushed to the spot and a piece of alarming news awaited him some leading members of the cabinet had refused point-blank to have anything to do with the comprehensive bill here was a coil it was two o'clock lord derby had to address a meeting of the conservative party at half-past two mr disraeli had to introduce the bill some bill in the house of commons at half-past four something must be done some bill must be introduced all eyes we may suppose glanced at the clock sir john packington averred that there were only ten minutes left for decision it is plain that no man whatever his gift of statesmanship or skill or penmanship can draw up a complete reform bill in ten minutes now came into full light the wisdom and providence of those who had hit upon the plan of keeping a second-class bill if we may use such an expression 
ready for emergencies. Out came the second-class bill, and it was promptly resolved that Mr. Disraeli should go down to the House of Commons and gravely introduce that, as if it were the measure which the government had all along had it in their minds to bring forward. Sir John defended that resolution with simple and practical earnestness. It was not a wise resolve, he admitted, but who can be certain of acting wisely with only ten minutes for deliberation? If they had had even an hour to think the matter over, he had no doubt, he said, that they would not have made any mistake. But what skills talking? They had not an hour, and there was an end of the matter. They had to do something, and so Mr. Disraeli brought in his second-class measure, the measure which Sir John Packington's piquant explanation sent down into political history with the name of the Ten Minutes Bill. The trouble arose, it seems, in this way. General Peel at first felt some scruples about the original measure, the Comprehensive Bill. Lord Cranbourne pressed him to give the measure further consideration, and General Peel consented. So the Cabinet broke up on the evening of Saturday, February 23rd, in seeming harmony. Next day, however, being Sunday, Lord Cranbourne, having probably nothing else to do, bethought him that it would be well to look a little into the details of the bill. He worked out the figures, as he afterwards explained, and he found that, according to his calculation, they would almost amount to household suffrage in some of the boroughs. That would never do, he thought, and so he tendered his resignation. This would almost, as a matter of course, involve other resignations, too. Therefore, there came the hasty meeting of the Cabinet on Monday the 25th, which Sir John Packington described with such unconscious humour. Lord Cranbourne and those who thought with him were induced to remain on condition that the comprehensive bill should be quietly put aside and the ten minutes bill as quietly substituted. Unfortunately, the reception given to the ten minutes bill was, as we have told already, utterly discouraging. It was clear to Mr. Disraeli's experienced eye that it had not a chance from either side of the house. Mr. Disraeli made up his mind, and Lord Derby assented. There was nothing to be done but to fall back on the comprehensive measure. Unwilling colleagues must only act upon their convictions and go. It would be idle to secure their cooperation by persevering farther with a bill that no one would have. Therefore it was that on February 26th, Mr. Disraeli withdrew his bill of the day before, the Ten Minutes Bill, and announced that the government would go to work in good earnest and bring in a real bill on March 18th. This proved to be the bill based on the resolutions, the comprehensive bill, which had been suddenly put out of sight at the hasty meeting of the Cabinet on Monday, February 25th, as described in the artless and unforgotten eloquence of Sir John Packington's Droitwich speech. Then General Peel, Lord Carnarvon, and Lord Cranbourne resigned their offices. Lord Carnarvon explained that he did not object to have the franchise lowered, but he objected to a measure which seemed to him to leave all the political power divided between the rich and the poor, reducing to powerlessness the influence of all the intervening classes. The objection of Lord Carnarvon has already been explained. General Peel, a man of straightforward, honourable character and good abilities, 
was opposed to what he regarded as the distinctly democratic character of the bill for the second time within ten years a conservative cabinet had been split up on a question of reform and the borough franchise it must be owned that it required some courage and nerve on mr disraeli's part to face the house of commons with another scheme and a newly constructed cabinet after all these surprises the first thing to do was to reorganize the cabinet by getting a new war secretary colonial secretary and secretary for india before march eighth this was accomplished the men who had resigned carried with them into their retirement the respect of all their political opponents during his short administration of india lord cranbourne had shown not merely capacity for that every one knew he possessed but a gravity self-restraint and sense of responsibility for which even his friends had not previously given him credit sir john packington as we have already mentioned became war minister mr corey succeeding him as first lord of the admiralty the duke of buckingham the lord chandos whose maiden speech in the great debate of thursday june twenty fifth eighteen forty six which closed the peel administration mr disraeli has described in his lord george bentinck became colonial secretary the administration of the india government was transferred to sir stafford northcote whose place at the head of the board of trade thus vacated was taken by the duke of richmond then having thrown their mutineers overboard the government went to work again at their reform scheme on march eighteenth mr disraeli introduced the bill as regarded the franchise this measure proposed that in boroughs all who paid rates or twenty shillings a year in direct taxation should have the vote and also that property in the funds and savings banks and so forth should be honoured with the franchise and that there should be a certain education franchise as well the clauses for the extension of the franchise were counterbalanced and fenced around with all manner of ingeniously devised qualifications to prevent the force of numbers among the poorer classes from having too much of its own way there was a disheartening elaborateness of ingenuity in all these devices the machine was far too daintily adjusted the checks and balances were too cleverly arranged by half it was apparent to almost every eye that some parts of the mechanism would infallibly get out of working order and that some others would never get into it mr bright compared the whole scheme to a plan for offering something with one hand and quietly withdrawing it with the other there was however one aspect of the situation which to many reformers seemed decidedly hopeful it was plain to them now that the government were determined to do anything whatever in order to get a reform bill of some kind passed that year they would have anything which could command a majority rather than nothing lord derby afterwards frankly admitted that he did not see why a monopoly of reform should be left to the liberals and mr disraeli had clearly made up his mind that he would not go out of office this time on a reform bill how little idea some of his colleagues had whither they were drifting may be understood from a speech made by lord stanley on march fifth after the resignation of lord cranbourne and the others if he said mr lowe or any of those who sat near him believed seriously that it is the intention of the government to bring in a bill which shall be in accordance with the view which has always been so ably and so consistently advocated by the member for birmingham 
mr bright that they are greatly mistaken it will be seen before long that the government consented to carry a measure going much farther in the direction of democracy than anything that had been ably and consistently advocated by the member for birmingham mr disraeli himself could not possibly have had any idea at first of the length to which he would be induced to go he told lord cranbourne with especial emphasis at one stage of the debates that the government would never introduce household suffrage pure and simple the bill became in the end a measure to establish household suffrage pure and simple in the towns the leading spirits of the government were now determined to carry a reform bill that session come what would they were partly influenced no doubt by the conviction that it was better to settle the question on some terms once for all and let the country have done with it but as they themselves avowed more than once they were also influenced by the idea that if the country would have reform the men in office might as well keep in office and give it to them this is not high-minded statesmanship to be sure but high-minded statesmanship not uncommonly conducts men out of office instead of keeping them in it one by one all mr disraeli's checks balances and securities were abandoned the dual vote a proposal to give a double voting power in boroughs to a rate-paying occupier who also paid twenty shillings of assessed taxes was laughed out of the bill the voting paper principle was abandoned the fancy franchises were swept clear away a lodger franchise was introduced at last it came to a struggle about the nature of the main franchise in boroughs the bill fixed it that any one rated to the relief of the poor in a borough should have the vote provided that he had lived two years in the house for which he was rated an amendment reducing the two years of qualification to one was carried in the teeth of the government by a large majority the government therefore agreed to accept the amendment at various stages of the bill mr disraeli kept announcing that if this or that amendment were carried against the government the government would not go any farther with the bill but when the particular amendment was carried mr disraeli always announced that the ministers had changed their minds after all and were willing to accept the new alteration at last this little piece of formality began to be regarded by the house as mere ceremonial the borough franchise was now reduced to household suffrage with a qualification but that qualification was one of great importance if mr disraeli could succeed in inducing the house to admit the qualification he would have good reason to say that he had kept his promise to lord cranbourne and that he had not consented to accept universal suffrage pure and simple the clause as it now stood excluded from the franchise the compound householder the compound householder figures largely in the debates of that session the controversialists on both sides battled for him and around him like the greeks and trojans fighting round the body of patroclus he sprang at once into prominence and into history he and his claims were the theme of discussion and conversation everywhere those who did not know what the compound householder was could not possibly have understood the reform debates of eighteen sixty seven the story goes that a witty public man being asked by a french friend to explain who the compound householder was described him as the male of the femme incomprise 
the compound householder in plain fact was the occupier of one of the small houses the tenants of which were not themselves raided to the relief of the poor by certain acts of parliament the owners of small houses were allowed to compound for their rates the landlord became himself responsible to the parochial authorities and not the tenant he paid up the rates on a number of those tenements and he received a certain reduction in consideration of his assuming the responsibility and saving the local authorities the trouble of collecting by paying up the amounts in a lump sum as a matter of fact it need hardly be said that the occupier did actually pay the rates for the landlord took good care to add the amount in each case to the rent he demanded but the occupier's name did not appear on the rate book nor had he any direct dealing with the parish authorities the compound householders were so numerous that they were said actually to constitute two-thirds of all the occupiers under ten pounds in some boroughs it was stated an occupier's franchise excluding compound householders would suddenly reduce with sweeping hand the number of existing voters and the reform bill of lord derby's government would be a disenfranchising instead of an enfranchising measure End of section eleven